Y Group invites all AEC industry leaders to the 2024 AEC Small Business and Entrepreneurship Forum, the premier event for small firms in the AEC sector. Experience innovative strategies and insights on May 21st, crafted by Zweig Group's industry experts. Engage in keynotes and interactive sessions focused on recruitment, retention, and business growth. Join Zweig Group for this unique networking opportunity and take your business to new heights. Secure your spot today and be part of the AEC industry's future. Visit ZweigGroup.com for more information. The Zweig Group team looks forward to welcoming you. Welcome to the Zweig Letter Podcast putting architectural, engineering, planning, and environmental consulting advice and guidance in your ear. Zweig Group's team of experts have spent more than three decades elevating the industry by helping AEP and environmental consulting firms thrive. And these podcasts deliver invaluable management, industry, client, marketing, and HR advice directly to you free of charge. The Zweig Letter Podcasts, elevating the design industry one episode at a time. Hey folks, and welcome back to another episode of the Zweig Letter Podcast. I'm your host, Randy Wilburn, and I'm excited to be with you today. I have an individual in front of me that I actually connected with at the Elevate AEC conference in Las Vegas, Nevada, in, in this past September, it's November at the time of recording of this particular podcast episode, November 2022. And um, I met Nick Durham, who is with Shadow Ventures at that Elevate AEC Summit. And we just, you know, there were just so many amazing people at that event. It was, it was hard to keep up, but, you know, it was, it was so great to see so many firms that are doing so well and that are just making a difference in the design industry space. And then to meet all of those ancillary organizations, if you will, that support the design firm owners and leaders. And so Nick is, is one of those individuals. He's a general partner with Shadow Ventures, and uh, he was kind enough to connect with me. And you know, I offered to bring him on the podcast to learn more about Shadow Ventures and everything that they're doing. And you know, certainly, I want to I be very clear right up front. Nothing that we talk about today is a solicitation in any way, shape, or form. We are not giving investment advice or anything of that nature. We are just learning more about investing in the space of uh, the design industry, right? Which is something, honestly, I've been involved with this industry since 97. This was not talked about for years. And uh, this has become a new thing, um, especially during the pandemic. You've gotten more VC uh, firms that have gotten involved with the design industry. And so it is a highly appropriate for us to have this conversation to create some awareness around what does that actually mean for a design firm? If, if somebody is able to fund some of the activity and work that a design firm is doing, or, you know, we've, we've had a couple of individuals on the podcast where we talked about how they are actively going out and acquiring firms under one umbrella company and finding real value in consolidating the expertise, consolidating all of these different abilities under one roof. And so I think it's important for us to have this conversation and learn about what is possible 
in the design industry space. So without further ado, Nick Durham, I want to welcome you to the Zweigletter podcast. And I know that was a long soliloquy to enter <laughs> into things, but we just want to frame the conversation and then we'll, we'll take it where it goes. So how are you doing today? Sounds great. Doing great, Randy. Yeah, I remember um, scoping you out at that event in Vegas. I was given a, a heads up that you were the guy, the guy to talk to on the media front. So yeah, I did a little little cold introduction, tap on the shoulder, and and here we are. <laughs> excited to be here. That's right. Yeah, no, without a doubt. So Nick, just for our audience, for their sanity and and just understanding, just give us a little bit about you and your background, and then we'll jump into Shadow Ventures. Yeah, sure. So my background starts as a in this industry as a as a child. My father is a home builder and had has had a family construction. We've had a family construction business. As long as I've been alive, I'd like to say instead of being sent to my room when I was grounded as a kid, I was sent to the job site to clean up, to manage the subs, <laughs> to do all the all the uh, the dirty chores that no, that no one wants to do on a job site. So I just have like you know I have a there's an embedded sense of of I think blue collar work ethic that I I grew up with being close to that, and then you know generally speaking like the practice of building something from scratch working both with your hands and creating, you know, a physical artifact that, you know, all architects and engineers and construction firms like big part of why every reason, you know, why why firms work and individuals work in the space is like you want to be a part of building something that's really important to to lots of people whether it's a home or whether it's a a really important workplace and an office, you know, different academic, you know, maybe it's an academic institution talk with uh, an engineering firm this morning that build built one of the first net zero buildings on a really influential academic campus. And just talking about that experience, you know, you can tell people in the industry, like this is their purpose, right? It's like leaving behind a really important physical artifact. So I had that from an early age. And as one does, I went out and did other, other things before committing to the family business. I, I studied finance, studied real estate finance, went to work in banking for a little while, and then actually got the, this got the itch to go back to work for the family business. And um, as, a, as a young adult, I tried to wrap my hands around working and, and running a construction business. And the thing that struck me, Randy, was, you know, went back to work for multiple projects and nothing had changed on the job site since when I was a kid. And by changed, I mean, like we were just building things the exact same way with very little leverage, not leveraging a lot of the tools that, that other industries like, like finance, for instance, was, was using just really basic technology tools was kind of dumbfounding to me that it hadn't quite entered our, our space. Like we were all, by this time, we were all carrying smartphones and using iPads at home. And yeah, it just the, the job site hasn't, hadn't crossed the chasm in terms of embracing technology. So it was just like a, it was a burning question for me and it led me down a rabbit hole of why. Like, why are we so resistant to it? The answer, as I later found out, is nuanced and it's not quite true that we hadn't embraced technology over the course of those decades that I mentioned, maybe just a little bit more subtly and maybe differently than I had anticipated. But the other reality was like, yeah, we're, we're still early phases of major digitization from a technology perspective across the built environment. So it actually, so that, that question was so impactful to me that I sought out a media company that was based in Chicago that essentially devoted themselves to educating the market on on new technology options, right? So if you're an AE firm, um, here are you know 50 software platforms, and 
design tools that might be helpful and give you more operating leverage in your business. And so that firm was like essentially the resource I was looking for. I reached out to the founder, got connected. I, I ended up moving to Chicago to work for the company. Actually, it became such an important mission for me. And I later, through that experience, recruited the Shadow Ventures founder. His name is KP Reddy. He came to speak at one of our events in Chicago. The organization I'm referring to is called Built Worlds. Definitely should should check it out if, if anyone listening has has an interest in innovation and the AEC space at large. It's a fantastic resource. But yeah, recruited a KP to speak at that event and the rest is history. We launched Shadow. Um, I joined the team in, in 2019, shortly after he, he launched the first fund. And yeah, we've made... We're at 15 investments since I, I joined the firm in, in 2019. And just so everyone... Yeah, so, so we've been hit, definitely investing at a pretty good clip. And just so everyone knows... We invest, so we're a venture capital firm at Shadow. We invest in an early stage technology, pure play product companies that are servicing the built environment, essentially that are providing better tool sets. Think of software, mostly software solutions in the AE, in the AE space. That's giving firms more leverage, helping the individuals working at, that, at those firms create better in products, servicing customers a bit better, uh, all those sorts of things. And we can get into concrete examples, but more or less that that is what we do. We're thematic and focused as a venture capital firm. Yeah. Well, and I'm glad you kind of gave us kind of a teaser about Shadow Ventures because I love your website. Your website says we have zero Ivy League MBAs with investment banking pedigrees. From our point of view, that's not what tech investing is all about. We are a firm of entrepreneurs who still write code, obsess over long sets of data, and yearn for the daily in the trenches grind of operating startups. We're proven entrepreneurs and investors. We're unapologetic technology nerds. We're ruthless builders. Is that that about sums it up for you guys? I think that sums it up pretty well. Yeah, we um not to offend anyone that went to an Ivy League institution. No, um, of course not. Probably and more, and we we, more, we are saying nerds <laughs> affectionately. <laughs> so. Yes, exactly. More of a, a, a of a probably a, a cope on our end, not having some of those academic credentials. But yeah, I mean, look, like we invest in startups that are just getting started building their business. So oftentimes the teams are, you know, anywhere from call it three people to 10 people when we invest. There is not, you know, th- there aren't a ton of financials and, and traction to diligence when we're investing, we're, we're, we're diligencing and, and making decisions based on what we think the potential impact that their product might have, knowing that that product might not even be fully baked yet. So if you think about what kind of skill set that requires, and then how do we even support those the companies we're investing in as well, we have to be kind of on the same page. We have to be willing to build alongside of them, you know, roll up our sleeves and help them write code if we need to, help them hire if we need to, help them make sales, show up on sales calls. Like We do all of that for our startups. So, it's, so venture capital, like especially early stage, is a very different way of investing. The way I like to think of it, like we're operating a lot of... We have a minority stake in every company we invest in. We're operating a lot of different startups all at once at, at scale, if you will. And so, yeah, you know, description you read, I think, sums up what that experience is like. You kind of have to be fully immersed into it and committed to it, to making it all come together and supporting the companies in the way that they need. Because there's always a fire to put out. You got three people on the team and you're selling, you know, a seven-figure deal. It's without a fully baked product, like you're, you got, you got a lot of work to do on the, on the weekends. And anyway, that that's what we signed up for. Yeah. And that's like the opposite of being a passive investor. 
<laughs> exactly. It really is. Yeah. yeah. We are definitely active investors. Oftentimes, you know, people will refer to us as operating partners. We are helping the, the startups op- operate their kind of their the, the daily workload that, that comes along with their business for sure. Yeah. Well, no, that, I think you summed it up nicely and gave us kind of like a, a great introduction into what you guys are doing. What can, and we talked about this before we started rolling, what can an investment in tech slash innovation mean for the traditional design firm, right? Because that's that's our audience here. We're, I mean, we, we are dealing with these bricks and mortar design firms that are all over the place, both here in the States and elsewhere that are always looking for an edge. Maybe they've created some in-house technology or some in-house way, a, a bigger, better mousetrap to solve a problem that they typically solve on a regular basis for their clients, or even an internal problem that they have come up with a solution that is a little bit more elegant to utilize. I mean, how do you look at those types of investments and opportunities and how does that play into the way you view a traditional design firm? Yeah, so definitely there are there are a lot of AE firms that we've worked with in our short history. So in you know just one caveat to put out there, we do so a lot of because we're thematic and focused and we're only investing in the built environment, we work with a lot of AE firms, AEC firms, even real estate developers, like they're the vast majority of investors that we have. It makes complete sense because if you're not familiar with this market, you may not have both a level of conviction about the opportunity in the market and then also the expertise to to service it well. And so vast majority of our, our investors fit that description. So when we talk about working with AE firms and, and, and why an investment might might interest them. You know, you really for vast majority of our investors, they're doing it to learn. They're doing it to learn about what emerging technologies, what new tools can give them an unfair advantage in delivering a better customer experience, delivering a better end product to their clients. And so whether that is through speed, whether that is through reduction of cost, whether that is through a more visual experience, right? Like enhancing the actual visual end product, all of those attributes are reasons that they would want to be exposed to the types of companies we're investing in. And the companies we're investing in are solving those problems directly. So they are trying to deliver new and enhanced step function, a step function better of a product experience for their customers. And oftentimes they're they're former designers, they're former engineers who felt who noticed a gap in the existing solution set. And they went out on their own to build a product that can service that market. So yeah, I think the to distill the answer, AE firms would be interested in what we're doing because it's we're giving you a, a view into the future and where you can get leverage and gain efficiency in your business. Yeah. And you know, it's funny, I can remember talking to and I've talked to several design firms that you know, they have had um, team members code something up to make a certain process that they do run more efficiently, right? It's like just something internally just to make, you know, just to maybe save them a couple of steps in the process of, of looking at some information. So can you give us maybe like one concrete example that you can share about, you know, just so that people can kind of connect the dots with regard to that and say, oh, okay, that's exactly what they're talking about here. Totally. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I'll give you a couple examples in our portfolio. So there's a company we invested in called Spaces. Spaces is reinventing the sketching process 
of a building design. So if you think about traditional sketching for designers, oftentimes we're talking, of course, on pen and paper. And Spaces is essentially leveraging the technology of an iPad. And they've, they've coded an application that allows you to sketch just the exact same way that you would sketch on paper directly onto the iPad. And then what it's doing on the back end, it's collecting a lot of rich data sets and allows you to expand on that initial sketch and design and deliver it in a way to potentially a 3D modeling software, a Revit, in a much quicker fashion, right? At some point, the physical world nowadays has to connect with the digital world. We have to get that physical drawing, that sketch onto the computer, right? So if we're more if we can more quickly iterate some of those sketches and when we have one that we that we love, we can quickly get that into the next phase of the design process. Again, like, you know, a platform like like Revit, that makes for a much faster design and, and concept phase of the process. And so really the technology that Spaces has built, we think is a pretty powerful platform. Essentially, we're we're starting digitally instead of starting in the physical world without any digital components to it. So there's rich data sets in the back end when you're sketching. It's it's you're able to essentially add and, and duplicate to you know uh, the initial design to different floors of the building. And so it's a really unique tool. I'm probably not doing it very much justice. It's very much a visual thing. So would love to put the the video in the sh- in the show notes so people can um, see see oh, yeah, the power absolutely. behind the tool. Yeah, uh, and I'll, I'll yeah, so I'll make sure to to get you that. Another example on the engineering side, we're invested in a company called RN. A-R-E-N, and they're an artificial intelligence-driven technology solution that leverages computer vision to inspect bridges, building facades, and roads, uh, a lot of civil infrastructure. So think of a drone, or even you could, you could take you know, a, a drones capturing basic photogrammetry, potentially doing some LIDAR scans. Instead of uh, an engineer junior engineer having to go physically walk the site of a bridge to inspect it and try to find the cracks and some of the risk factors with that particular bridge, which by the way, is a really relevant issue here in the US. We've all seen the, the bridge collapse stories over the last couple of years, and that's not going to get any better. And so if you could, in a more accurate way, reduce that time that that engineer has to go out and survey the site and leverage AI and computer vision and, and even drones, aerial drones to capture some of that imagery and be potentially many, many more times accurate with the readings of some of the fault points in the in the infrastructure, like that's a pretty powerful tool. Engineers are going to get a lot of their time back. You know, the, the end result of the, the end product that you're delivering to customers is, is potentially more accurate. And these are obviously major, there's a lot of risk and, and liability associated with, with that end product delivery. So that's another example, more on the civil side. But I think like high level, you know, in the AE world, it's it's mostly mostly software products that are augmenting the design experience. And, th- and think of the solutions we're investing in. They are just, they are tools for designers. In no way are we investing in things that are replacing the, the skill that, that an architect or, or engineer might bring to the equation. We're often just augmenting, we're augmenting their work. And so when you think about the future ecosystem of tools for the next generation designer or architect, that's what we're interested in funding. Yeah, you know, and it's so funny because I mean, I know a lot of people they they have concerns about that, right? You know, when is Skynet going to replace me, and you know, when when am I going to you know be out of worked out of a job, you know, because of technology? And I don't know that that, especially in the built environment, I don't know that that's ever going to be the case. Yeah, there there may be robots that 
you know, roam job sites. And I can think of, you know, drones that do a lot of that work now. And uh, some of that heavy lifting from an observation standpoint is actually hyper valuable because if a drone can adequately, like you described, assess a bridge or assess a building or a structure, that information almost in real time can be sent back to the design professional who can render a fairly accurate assessment of things unless, you know, maybe another site visit is warranted for a pair of human eyes to look at what that, you know, computer algorithm via a drone looked at and pointed out might be an issue. That's totally right. I mean, I think that particular example is, um, you know, it's nuanced, right? There's a, <laughs> what we're asking someone who would hire that company to do is to trust a computer over human eyes in that instance. And admittedly, like, I don't think any anyone's expectation, even the founders of the company would tell you that we're ready to fully do that quite yet. We're talking about a bridge that transports thousands of humans across it each year. You know, there's a layer of trust that we need to have in the, in the solution before that's ever going to reach any, any massive scale. But what we're doing is we're, we are augmenting those engineers who are going out and we are helping them in this particular instance, we're helping them get better scale with their work. They're not disappearing from the job site. We're just helping them be more accurate. And then when we do find potentially an error, whether it's the computer that finds this or whether it's the human eyes that finds this, potentially we can even get more granular into what actually is happening there versus having to you know, lift ourselves up onto that particular bridge in that, in that zone. We can zoom in a lot, a lot more quickly in a particular area to understand what's, what's going on once we identify it, right? So it is nuanced. And to your point on, on Skynet, like, yeah, like that's not happening tomorrow in our industry. Like the, <laughs> the, the roles are, are, are too critical. But I'm also not going to be like the, like, look, I'm a, we're technology investors or technologists. So we, we do have this, like, there is a science fiction component to, in reality for us that like, yeah, technology is going to steal jobs. Like, let's not be, let's not assume everything's completely fine and things will, will exist. The job roles are just going to evolve, right? Yeah. We'll have to evolve and, and, and we should. Like that's what the human race has always done. We've, we've evolved and we've transformed, transformed jobs. We've transformed our roles in society. We've, you know, agrarian culture to the industrial revolution. Like, you know, we're always evolving the human role with, you know, when, when we find new and, and way more leveraged and efficient tools. So I, I think this time is no different. Maybe it just involves a little bit more robots this time. Yeah. You know, and it's so funny, as you say that when I think of like augmentation, right, it's like, it's, it's an, and it's not an, or, right. You know, it's not like, you know, have some human eyes or a, a computer do this, do your work. It's an, and, you know, I think it's both. Right. And I, I just recently saw a special on 60 minutes about the Surfside condominium in, in Southern Florida. Mm, and I, yeah. now I, I think back and I don't know if, if this even exists, but, you know, imagine that, if I am in the engineering department of a local municipality or city and I'm able to, I mean, you got to figure those guys are, they are stretched to the gills as it is when it comes to inspecting and assessing properties and what have you. Imagine having the technology at your disposal that would not only allow you to do assessments, but to inspect and point out things that you might miss because, well, you've gone mm. out and looked at 15 buildings today. And that that makes all the difference in the world. And in the same vein, that technology can also support that design firm that is now called out to render a result when it comes to any type of remediation that might be required on mm -hmm. said building. 
I'm just giving one example, right? And I'm sure that, uh, you know, that's like you said, it is one of the important hallmarks of our society is that we continue to advance and we allow technology to afford us the ability to do more than what we've done in the past so that we can not just save lives, but create a healthier environment for us in general. And that's certainly, if it doesn't apply to the built environment, I don't know what it applies to. I mean, of course it applies in healthcare and other spaces, but in the built environment, as I'm always reminding engineers and architects, I mean, you create, you create the roads that we drive on, the buildings that we go into and live in, and everything about all that we see out in the natural space. And so I think every extra tool that we can utilize and every technology that is at our disposal, we should be using to advance our society forward. And that's just a, a, a simple rant, but it's just, I mean, to me, it just makes sense. It doesn't, you know, there shouldn't be any fear there. It should be more of an embracing of, hey, this is going to help us move move society mm-hmm. forward. Yeah. And I think, I mean, the your thesis there, obviously it makes it makes logical sense. I think one just to draw a, a parallel about that, that macro argument that we should always be embracing and embracing technology. You know, you, you see this coming up a lot related to the, the climate debate. There are kind of two sides right now related to the climate debate. And I, I personally think it's a highly nuanced discussion, but you, you see two sides of the political spectrum, the Malthusians, you know, arguing that we should essentially reduce energy at all costs and the Prometheus side, which is, hey, we should, like humans thrive when we're expending more energy. And we should, you know, we should, of course, work to, to move towards more, more energy dense solutions that, that have fewer greenhouse gas emissions, reduce the carbon footprint. But like, we're human beings, like we need to embrace energy to thrive and live in society. But there is this like this faction of people that, that thinks that, hey, we, we should reduce, like everyone needs to reduce their energy. And so it is for what for what it's worth, like to your point, I think while pe- most people would agree with what you just said, there are some nuanced things that might be hidden, you know, beneath the service when it comes to actually em- truly embracing and adopting that technology that get in the way. Yeah. And one, you know, look, I, I started this podcast telling you why I became interested in this. I was working and living in the in an industry that was resisting technology and wasn't embracing every tool that that was in front of them that would give them efficiency. A lot of it is, you know, complacency, right? Like we've been doing this for 10, 50, 100 years. Why do we need to change anything we're doing? We're doing great. But, you know, the, the other side of that point is like humans evolve and we can be doing things better. That's what sets us like we have the ability to use abstract concepts and advance the types of tools that we're using over time to to improve on what we're doing. We're not we don't exist in in 2022 to build things the way that we did 100 years ago. Like we exist to build them better. That's how we've evolved. And if we're not fully aware of that decisioning, I think sometimes there is this hidden argument ha- that happens inside of people of like, "Oh, it's it's okay. Like I don't need to I don't need to put energy into this new thing." When actually that new thing is like what advances humanity, right? And so I don't know if that makes any sense, but I think oftentimes it's while very logical on the surface, there are things that get in the way of people really adopting significant advancements in tech. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I, I think we we need to be constantly evolving in that space. And you will never get anything without trying, you know. And I always think of Edison's quote about, you know, it wasn't that I failed 
I had 2000 mistakes or 2000 failures that he figured out. He used those failures were the foundation for all the breakthroughs that he experienced. And even in the space that you're in, not everything that you guys touch is going to be hyper successful. But on the off chance that one or two of those things are those breakthrough items that really, you know, that really just, you know, shoot off like a rocket into the stratosphere, that that's honestly what makes it worthwhile. And I know that I've done a little bit of research on VCs and, you know, I think a lot of VCs and I don't I don't know many VCs personally. I know a few, but they're not spending, you know, high dollar figures. But I think of like the the Andreessen Horowitz folks and others in the tech space and you know, their idea is that, yeah, we're going to invest in a whole bunch of stuff. It's kind of like the buckshot approach. One of those is going to pay, one or two of those is going to pay off and that's going to make the whole process worthwhile. And I would have to imagine that, you know, there's a, there's some semblance of that in terms of what you're doing, but I would add that in real world practice, because of the fact that you're working with the built environment, you're working with design firms that, you know, everything that they do while somewhat in some way, shape or form is nuanced, but everything that they do is so concrete and black and white, right? Because there's, you know, there is no failure in structural engineering. If you have a failure in structural engineering, you've got a real problem. You've got to succeed. And so I would imagine that those that are creating the next wave of technology and technology innovations for the design industry are probably going to have a better track record long-term then, you know, it won't just be a pie in the sky. Oh, well, we're just going to try this and see if it works. No, not really, because the work that we do anyway requires us to be careful and we have to take a measured approach to this. So I just think that working with design firms, you'll probably have a, a better hit rate, if you will, than maybe looking at just like the normal tech startup that's like, oh, I want to, you know, build a widget that's going to allow my dog to feed himself or whatever. I don't know. So I mean, that's just one example, but I just think that the stakes are much higher. And because of that, there's going to be more thoughtfulness, a more thoughtful approach that goes into creating the technology that will move this industry forward. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great point. This is one, what you just highlighted is one area where our market is certainly differentiated from other, other markets in the world. It's very rare for us to see a successful startup that is selling at market without a fully baked solution, right? Like what structural engineering enterprise or what massive design firm is going to roll out a technology solution at scale without a truly, I mean, you got to be able to service like every aspect of the design phase or of the engineering phase in order for it to work. It can't be confined and and built in a, in a modular way. Like it needs to, to your point, there's just too much risk. There's, you know, the moment there's a lack of trust from the end user about what that product can do and the amount of leverage it can provide you, that's when that product won't get adopted. Yeah, you have to have the the end user has to be fully trusted, trusting in the in the solution, and so it has to be a really comprehensive, big solution. And that is that is definitely a challenge about building a startup in the space. Is like it takes time. Like you're not going to get a you know a lot of the iterations and the pivots that you hear about in in early stage the early stage startup world, it's much harder in our space. Like imagine servicing a, a massive design firm like an HOK or a massive structural engineering firm like a Thornton Tomasetti, and then, you know, telling them halfway through the project that you're pivoting on your solution. Like they're going to, you know, they'll walk you out of the building, right? Like yeah. they're not, they're, <laughs> they'll never work with you again. 
it's just too you were mission critical to their their project and now you're you're no longer trustworthy right so they're going to find a new solution or they're going to fall back on old habits so i think that's a really important point to your point on um venture capital in the space so venture is often referred to so famously referred to as a uh, it's a grand slam business not a home run business and i think yeah. that quote is attributed to bill Gurley from benchmark and it's true like venture capital operates on a power law dynamic which means that the vast majority of technology returns come from a smaller and smaller cohort of of companies and so even if you look across the ae space and think about what the most impactful tech solutions have been over the last couple of decades like some basic cad solutions like you know autocad revit would be another one you know then 3d modeling of, of buildings sold to, to autodesk in the construction space procore right procore has done I think they've done like a 2000x from their initial seed seed valuation. It took them a while to do that. I think it took them 17 years to IPO and get to that that mark, but 2000x on your investment. Like that is what we're that's what we're aiming for. And yeah. so we're in it for the long haul. That doesn't happen over a 2 to 3 year period. We're building cathedrals, not not flash in the pan cookie cutter re- retail centers. Like we're going for for massive results and if we're not playing that game, we're not playing venture capital very intelligently because the reality is that's how technology businesses work. They usually end up being monopolies and category defining if the business is successful enough. Yeah. Do you see, and it's, and I'm only asking this particular question because I've, I've actually interacted with a couple of folks now that are heavy into this space, but how do you see the modular building community feeding into some of the stuff that you're doing? And I see, there's got to be some technology implements and and some some things that you could uh, apply from a modular building perspective that will allow you to iterate even faster, right? And and in that space, there is real value in that. Yeah, I mean, look the the interesting thing about modular has been there's obviously been a resurgence in in conversation about it in the last five years. Modular has been a thing, and it's been tried in construction for decades. I don't know when the exact date, you know, was when the, the first modular facility was uh, factory was developed, but everyone can, you know, in, intuitively understands that a lot of the reasons we have inefficiency in the traditional construction process is because it's on site in a non-controlled environment. We're dealing with natural hazards. We're dealing with storms. We have to physically deliver and transport all the materials to that site. Supply chains are complex. You know, transport is complex. Getting the materials to another side of the world is complex. If you could build in a controlled environment that controls a lot more of those variables, doesn't have to deal with natural weather systems that that might get in the way, might delay projects. It makes a ton of sense. It's it's just you know it's a controlled space. Like you would gain logically economies of scale through that building process. And so that's the promise of modular is that you would gain a lot of margin and you'd be able to build in a much faster capacity than. Than you do, and 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 look like our thesis at, at Shadow is modular will become a thing. It's just a matter of when and what that adoption curve is. And you know, we're we would invest in technology solutions, uh, what we call picks and shovels that supports modular. Like we would never invest in a traditional modular construction business. That's we would still view that as a service business. So again, we're pure play tech. But modular in and of itself holds a lot of promise. We still think like, you know, Katera is often what's uh, the, the company that's talked about 
in terms of the, the venture space related to modular to raise you know two billion dollars and went to zero. And I think we've learned a lot from from that experience. There's a fantastic blog out there if if, if anyone's listening to this and wants to dig into why the failures of modular and where do we go from here. Uh, it's called Construction Physics, and I know that that your audience, Randy, would love to read this this blog. But um, former Katera employee and talks a lot about why they failed okay. and why. We haven't really scaled modular in a, in a significant way yet. Modular is very capital intensive. So I think from a venture perspective, often not a great fit. We want our companies, we want our companies to not take on a, a lot of debt, to be small, nimble, robust, to not have their have their hand. We want them to stay really focused on tackling one significant, you know, one significant problem. Modular is like this whole host of risk. It's design, it's engineering, it's construction, it's real estate development, it's regulatory. There's regulatory concerns, there's geographical concerns, and it's um, a lot of moving parts. <laughs> it doesn't meet a lot of the standards that you'd want to see for a great venture investment. We think probably debt is a or, or, or cheaper equity capital is a better instrument for modular to get started. And but we would be supportive of software and hardware companies that are inserting themselves into that into that process for sure. Yeah. Well, like you said, picks and shovels, I think that's the reference that everybody talks about. And for those of you that don't know that reference, it's just, it's the reference that people used with the gold rush in California. And, you know, nobody, you know, there's one person was rushing out there and he wasn't rushing out there to pan for gold. He was actually rushing out there to supply everybody that was doing that work. So there is some, there are definitely some benefits to that. Well, listen, as we wind up this conversation, and it, this is we could go on and on about this. And I know that there's a lot more to shadow ventures into what you're doing than, than just what we've been able to kind of talk about here. But, you know, I would love to get your thoughts on just like one of the pain points that you are trying to target with your investment vehicle in terms of identifying needs, like one specific pain point that you've, you've identified and you said, you know what, this is one where we can really help and especially when it comes to design firms. Yeah, so I would say um with design firms in particular there, there's that company I mentioned at the start of the call uh spa- spaces reinventing mm-hmm. sketching the this the sketching part of the of the design process. You know, one of the things that a simple workaround that's actually pretty annoying for a lot of designers is the file conversion, the file type conversion that is required to get into a Revit or get into a, a third party software platform where you can spin up a 3D model. They're making that super simple. Like you can essentially convert to many different file types to the platform and convert and you know upload the the initial design concept directly to Revit or any other any other CAD or, or BIM modeling software out there. So I think like you know where we would come into that is we specifically as specialists in the market, everyone on our team comes from this industry. We know those challenges. Like we've worked at those challenges. We've worked with customers who are like, hey I love I love using Revit, but like I like I but the file conversions are are making me not want to use it, or it's the reason I'm not adopting it 100 percent of my projects, etc. So we're like tuned in to the market on what particularly like what are the technical problems that we haven't quite solved yet. File types, file sizes are a big thing in AE. The size of the and scope of a lot of these, like one thing that comes up if you're doing a, a lidar scan when you go out to a job site, initial structure of a building goes up, you're you're scanning the site. That LIDAR scan is a massive file size. So like how on earth do you start to integrate and, and get that data into a into your own internal systems to, to leverage it in the future and to have some sort of record of, of what you've done in the past and what's worked. 
So I think that, um, you know, in terms of how we help, like we have a full-time CTO on our team. One of my partners, he is fantastic at, and has worked to solve these. Uh, he's a software engineer by trade and has worked to solve these problems his whole career. He's spent his career exclusively building software for the space. And so we can advise the founders of that company like, hey, we know you're trying to solve this problem. Here's the issues we've run into when architecting that technical solution. Maybe here's a, a way to, to, to think about... Here's a way to think about engineering that, that, that software that actually might work this time. We don't have the resources to do that, but they do. And so we'll outsource a lot of that knowledge to them. Another example is like, hey, if you're an early stage startup, what's the most valuable thing for you? It's a customer, right? Yeah. Our network of investors, we have over 100 investors who've worked with in our, our short stand as a firm. So when we invest in a deal, we have like 5 to 10 embedded customers that are ready to sign up for that product day one when we write the check. And that, you know, if you ask the startups, that's the most valuable thing that, that we add is we give them, we give them customers who are willing to, you know, work, work with them early, understand that they're early phases, they're the early adopters and, and the innovators that are willing to, to give them a try and know while their solution is mission critical to the project, they aren't going to have every, everything 100% figured out day one. And so they're going to help give them that product feedback to improve it to a state where the entire world can adopt it. Yeah, I love that. No, that's perfect. Well, listen, you've, you've laid it all out there. I'm, I'm going to end with this one question for you. What was your overall experience like at Elevate AEC? And did you have a big aha moment or was there something about the design industry that you didn't quite have a handle on that after you experienced that event and contacting all those people, you got a chance to learn more about that? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was, uh, I'd say my, it was, so it was my first, uh, Zwei group event for what it's okay. worth. I got connected with, Chad and, and Will Swearingen over the past year. And one of the, you know, one of the things they shared with me is the magnitude of your community. And like that was on full display that night. Like he, like there were <laughs> massive amounts of people. One of my experiences, in, you know, when talking about tech is like, it's hard to find AE people who are excited about new technology and, and new ways and new methods of doing things. And yeah. I was like, I entered the room. I'm like, wow, like this is a group of people that they're clearly aligned with that thinking. I'm like, amazing that you guys have built this community, truly. It's not an easy thing to break into and, and to have that sort of sort of enthusiasm to, you know, to build a really long lasting cultural, culturally aligned firm. So fantastic. That was, I think, the biggest takeaway is like the community that you build is just fantastic. Yeah. Well, you know, like attracts like, and I think what we were able to do and what Zwag has always been able to do is to bring together a variety of firms that solve a variety of needs in the built environment space, but that they're all hyper successful, hyper thoughtful when it comes to interacting with their clients and delivering the best product slash service possible. And, you know, that makes all the difference in the world for the clients of these firms. And that's why these firms are so successful. That's why they're best firms to work for. That's why they market themselves on a whole nother level. And they just carry themselves differently. So, I mean, it was just, you just had a bunch of overachievers all in one room. Yeah, you really, you, yeah, it was, it was quite impressive. I met a few good folks and I would, I would say too, the appetite to learn was pretty phenomenal too. Like everyone was super interested in what we're doing, but largely speaking, it's like, how can I build a better firm? And I think everyone's hungry to do that. So that was, that was yeah, cool to see. Absolutely. Well, Nick Durham, I really appreciate you taking time out to join us here on this Wag Letter podcast and to, kind of share your thoughts about Shadow Ventures. And I'm, in, I'm encouraging everybody 
to visit shadow.vc to check out Shadow Ventures website. Nick, if, if people want to connect with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, um, I am at in Durham. So N-D-U-R-H-A-M at shadow.vc is my email. I'm at, at pnick, pnick Durham on Twitter. I'm mainly a consumer of Twitter, but I occasionally tweet when I get the, the, the random inspiration. Um, yeah. But email is, fin- is a fantastic way to reach me. Okay, cool. Well, we'll put all of that in the show notes and I'm going to be sending you a, a document to fill out to share with us. So I'll be sure to put all of that there so that everybody that's listening to this has access to it. So you'll, you can check out the show notes at zwygroup.com and, and uh, for this particular episode, and uh, you'll learn more about Nick and the rest of his team at Shadow Ventures and all the cool stuff that they're doing, and maybe even how you could you could work with them, right? And so I know some of you listening to this are, you know, your, your mind is racing in the back and you're like, man, I, I want to connect with these guys. So uh, we'll make sure that you have all the information that you need to connect with Nick and the rest of his team at Shadow Ventures. But uh, Nick, thank you so much for joining us on this Wag Letter podcast. This is certainly the first time that we've had you on. So we really appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to be with us, but it won't be the last time. So we appreciate you. I appreciate it, Randy. Enjoy the conversation. And um, yeah, we'll have to do round two in, in Vegas here in the near future. Absolutely. Okay. Well, folks, that's another episode of this Wag Letter podcast. To learn more about one of the oldest newsletters in the design industry, visit zweiggroup.com. You can read articles online, listen to this podcast, and sign up for a free subscription to the newsletter and have it delivered right into your email inbox every Monday morning. Sign up today. For more info about Zwei Group's advisory services or any of Zwei Group's publications, visit zweigroup.com. You can subscribe to the Zwei Letter podcast wherever you listen to it, and please consider rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. I'm your host, Randy Wilburn, and we'll see you back here soon. Peace. Thanks for tuning in to the Zwei Letter podcast. We hope that you can be part of elevating the industry and that you can apply our advice and information to your daily professional life. For a free digital subscription to the Zwei Letter, please visit thezweigletter.com slash subscribe to gain more wisdom and inspiration in addition to information about leadership, finance, HR, and marketing your firm. Subscribe today.